Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Demystifying Private Credit, and it's for institutional and professional investors. I'm Karen Ward, Chief Market Strategist with our Global Market Insights Strategy Group. With me today is Leander Christofides, co-CIO, Global Special Situations from JP Morgan Asset Management, and Perry Jakansky, Credit Research Analyst with JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Thanks. So if we can start with the basics, what is private credit relative to a corporate bond? A good way to think about it is across the return spectrum. So private credit really starts off at the, at the top end. It has the senior direct lending part of that. And that really starts as a high single digit to low double digit type strategy. And then often fund structures typically then put additional leverage on there to then take that up to say the mid-teens type return. And then similar to that, you then have subordinated capital. Some people call it mezzanine lending. And again, that is typically a low to mid-teens type return and can be given additional return by putting additional leverage on that structure as well. And then you get what's called special situations and distressed. And special situations really includes distress, but also has some of the more performing stressed assets in there. And pure distressed is obviously just distressed. And the return profile for them are much more like private equity, which is in that sort of 15 to 25% type return. And then away from that, you get some very specialty finance related subsets of private credit like aviation or transportation lending or leasing or other more quirky things like, you know, healthcare receivable financing or care royalties. There's lots of very little small buckets within all of that specialty uh, product. But the bulk of the those products are, are private in nature, um, don't have public securities, don't report p- uh, publicly in many cases. And, and a lot of them often have cap structures that are less than a billion dollars in size as well. And so for the most part, that's what you know the private credit universe is defined by. Where do you think we are in the credit cycle today? And are there any particular opportunities, particular sectors, et cetera, that are particularly appealing? Yeah, I, I do think certain sectors are more appealing than others and are at different stages of their own credit cycle. For example, in the US, I'm much more cautious about corporate debt being late in the cycle than residential mortgage debt. Since 2009, corporate debt as a percentage of GDP has increased by 10%. Corporate debt to EBITDA levels are near historic highs, and covenant light issuance has vastly increased. In contrast, since 2009, residential mortgage debt as a percentage of GDP has decreased by 15%. Household debt service ratios are near 30-year lows, and origination has improved while supply-demand fundamentals for housing are strong. All that said, when we're investing in private credit, we don't just rely on these sector views. It's hard to predict when a recession will happen, and when it does, it will impact all credit sectors to some degree. We therefore stress all of our private credit investments to a recessionary scenario and focus on investments where we expect to recover most of our principal back in a downturn. This has led us to focus on staying first lean in the capital structure, having a meaningful loan-to-value cushion backed by an attractive asset, loans that amortize, and to loans with short-weighted average life. 
And in addition, we try to have diversification in all of our portfolios, and we invest across the U.S. and Europe and diversify by sectors, including residential, commercial, consumer, and corporate. One of the things investors are getting increasingly worried about at the moment is a higher interest rate environment. So if we did move into a higher interest rate situation, how does that affect the private credit market? A lot of what we invest in in private credit is actually floating rate. So the direct impact of higher interest rates will actually be positive for a lot of our private credit investments. However, there can be tangential impacts. If there are floating rate debt to corporations, that will have an impact on their earnings. Or if there's floating rate debt for commercial real estate loan, that'll impact the cap rates on that property. So it, it does pose some certain risks, even though we focus on having very little interest rate duration in our exposure. Yeah, I, I would add actually uh, on that, though, I think uh, in our mind, there can be a differential between when you think about where you are in the cycle, when you think about sort of large companies and large corporates, when you think about the S&P or Eurostocks versus levered credits. And often what sits in the private credit universe are levered credits. And sometimes then those managers will put additional leverage on top of that structure. And typically when you have a rising rates environment, the bit that people often forget is that often spreads on levered credits then rise, where often spreads on high-grade companies don't rise as much. And so the impact of higher rates can be almost twofold on levered credits and therefore have more of an impact on the private credit universe than the larger performing side of the rest of the economy. And so as you're in late cycle, you can get a lot more volatility as a result. So I think that combination of higher spreads combining with higher rates is the bit that people sometimes forget. So you talked about being able to span geographies and span sectors. So you've got a lot of flexibility. At the moment, where do you think on a regional basis is particularly attractive in this market? So I think geographically, we touched on it, but it's worth getting into a bit more detail. The European banks still have a significant amount of deleveraging to go through. And that really manifests itself still as a constant supply in the direct lending business, but also a supply of non-performing and non-core loans. So if you think about that, that's really split almost 50-50 in Europe between non-core and non-performing. And the interesting thing is that's about a two trillion number still today that exists. And it stayed about a two trillion over the last few years, despite significant asset sales by banks. And that's because as the years progress, constant new rules are added in in the marketplace. So, for example, you'll have a situation where the IFRS 3 rules come in, and those really change the way that banks have to provision for non-performing loans and increase the amount of equity they have to put against them and therefore increase that non-performing side. In addition, new rules by the European Central Bank have meant that European banks have to provisions where they think a loan will be impaired and therefore increase that supply pot. So in other words, as asset sales happen, new rules occur and that pot gets replenished and we stay in that two trillion range. I think away from that, in the US, we see pockets of distress, which are sectorially specific, and that is retail, healthcare, energy related. And so I think that's the two main differences geographically. Well, I think there's certainly more nervousness in markets, as we've seen over the first weeks of the year. We had a very strong start, but volatility certainly seems to be back. How should investors feel about sacrificing liquidity for this product? In terms of statistics, 
just generally. I think when you think about liquidity in the market as a whole, liquidity has changed significantly since the last crisis to today. And in the last cycle, dealers had about 280 billion of positions. And today that's less than 30 billion. And ETFs in high yield and loans were almost zero, and now they're about 75 to 100 billion in size. And so we can see, in essence, the market has set itself up for continued increase in volatility going forward. And what we do know is that those investors that have the right structure to take advantage of that volatility in the market can therefore create excess returns. In other words, the market's now set itself up to reward those that can take that illiquidity. And hence, we've seen, as a result, the significant increase in interest in private credit markets as a result. So in other words, as you've been searching for yield and checking, you're being paid for additional risk. At least in private credit, your view is you are being paid for the additional inherent risk, whereas as yields have been compressed in other areas of the credit spectrum, it's not quite so obvious. I'll give you a good example. So in more observable markets, take the CLO market. There, CLO equity currently is being marketed as a 10% return. However, that's assuming a 1% annual default rate. And if you were to change your assumption to nearer where it really is, which is nearer to 2%, it takes your return on CLO equity down to 4 or 5%. Well, in essence, do you think it makes sense to take 10-year locked, levered, illiquid equity risk at 5%? That seems very expensive. And so therefore, in private equity world, where you can often be in senior debt or, or debt with a cushion in it and get a double-digit type return, investors feel more comfortable there. I would also argue that actually a lot of the interest in private credit world has actually come from investors historically that were involved in private equity. And whilst we're in the beginning of this, we didn't really include private equity as part of that private credit universe, it's often in many cases the same teams that cover the private equity allocations to funds as they do in private credit. And we've seen nervousness in in those teams around the high equity valuations that are occurring and wanting to shift that much more towards the stressed and distressed part of private credit as we enter a late stage cycle. And if an investor has perhaps a more standard portfolio, they have some of their allocation in equities, some into government bonds, and then perhaps moving into the credit spectrum, what are they going to get from adding this product to their portfolio? First and foremost, as, as you referenced, Karen, investors are looking for yield. Public credit spreads are, are at or near all-time tights in many markets. Equity valuations are high, and investors are seeking returns while maintaining downside protection, given where we potentially are in the credit cycle. I think given the regulatory environment that has forced banks out of many types of historically attractive lending businesses and has also forced banks to shed assets to delever, improve capital ratios and uh, improve return on equity. There are opportunities for private credit managers to step in and either originate loans at, at yield premiums relative to public credit and I think relative to the risk of those loans or as Leander previously referenced in Europe to buy loans often off of European bank balance sheets today because they still have two trillion of non-core and non-performing assets to shed. So I think there are some dislocations still out there in the private credit markets that that don't exist as much in, in public credit markets. 
so just for us to understand exactly how this asset class works in in the broader context, can you describe to me what's a macro environment that is the perfect backdrop for this product? And then also on the other extreme, what's the macro background, which is the worst for this product so that we can understand its vulnerabilities and opportunities? So maybe one of you start with with the best backdrop and the other could take what's the worst backdrop. So I would start and say that within private credit, there are some sub-strategies that position themselves as all-weather through a cycle. And so you could articulate that as, for example, the senior direct lending strategy, which positions itself being able to perform through a cycle. In addition, away from that, the sub-strategy special situations in private credit, because it has a mix of distressed and performing assets within it, also positions itself as all-weather. And then away from that, you get more specialized parts. So for example, some people focus on just, say, mezzanine, or say, just distressed debt. And perhaps those are polar opposites where mezzanine really benefits as you're coming at the beginning of the cycle and benefit of that and that valuation appreciation. And distressed exactly the opposite, which it has a finite window of perhaps 40% window through a, a cycle where it really has its heyday at that point. And then perhaps lastly, but not least, you have those sort of more specialist ends of private credit, like transport or leasing or things, which are very specific around specific holes that banks have left behind, which are less around cycles, but more around replacing banks in, in the marketplace. And so what's a scenario where you would expect private credit to struggle? You have to, again, break it down into those sub-strategies. Uh, so I think... You've seen over the last year before last, some of the distressed guys actually struggled as you're nearing the peak of a cycle. And likewise, you've seen some very strong performance of direct senior lenders on the other side of that coin. I think if you have a strong rising default rate scenario, I think senior direct lenders in private credit land will not be immune from that. And I think perhaps that more than the, the cycle, the there has been more competition in that space. And so you've seen almost a trillion raised in direct lending over the last few years, and where the weaker managers versus the strong managers will start to differentiate themselves between the quality of the credits that they're able to source from in the market. Similar to Leander, I think the opportunity set or the best and worst time for private credit really depends on the strategy, and there are a lot of different flavors for us, we're very flexible across both strategy type, investing in performing loans through non-performing loans, as well as different sectors across residential, commercial, corporate, and consumer. So it's I think it's hard to say there's one environment that's all in all good or bad for private credit, because I think it depends on what environment is good for, for various strategy types. For instance, just after the financial crisis, we were much more active in distressed investing across residential mortgage-backed securities and, and corporate liquidations. And in the last few years, uh, at least in the U.S., there's been relatively fewer distressed opportunities, and we've been finding dislocated opportunities uh, to originate new loans where banks no longer are active in lending. Going forward, the fundamentals will shift. The supply-demand dynamics of a, a strategy will shift, and we continue to maintain flexibility. So I think it's hard to say, a, a certain period of time is, is good or bad for all private credit strategies. 
That's really interesting because I'm sure that many people's prior to this asset class would have been that it's very clearly cyclical, but your ability to move dynamically, as you said, across different areas of the private credit spectrum actually really challenges that prior. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I, I think regardless of the strategy you're implementing, especially given where we are in the cycle, you have to be very focused on downside protection. So in all strategies, when we're entering, especially at this point in the cycle, we stress every investment, assuming we are going to go through a recession and only invest if we expect that we'll recover our basis in a downturn. So that can be the case either in a distressed or performing loan. And if it's a performing loan, we're very focused on maintaining first lien in the capital structure, having a low LTV, having a short weighted average life, and overall having a lot of downside protection through those features and a manager that can work through problems if they arise. So regardless of the, the strategy we're implementing, we want to maintain a focus on earning a, earning a solid yield or return along the way, but also having a lot of downside protection. So Leander, can you give me, digging a bit deeper on that ability to dynamically move across the spectrum, can you talk us through how that's worked out in practice over the last, say, 10 years through this cycle? Yeah, so I think uh, a good way to start is to think about what actually happens. I think what often people do is they, when they try and predict a cycle, they start trying to predict a recession. But actually what normally happens is the precursor is market disruption. And market disruption then leads to volatility in the market, leads to a slowdown of access to capital, and then often is the thing that really feeds through to recession. And so when you have that market volatility phase, you need to have the flexibility to look at what are, in essence, good companies trading at low valuations. And often those companies can have catalysts that can give extra uh, performance. And so through the last cycle, for example, for us through 2009 through 2011, uh, between 80 and 100% of what we were doing was in that, in that bucket. And then really from 2012 through 2015, we went through a classic distress cycle where over 70% of what we did was almost pure distressed as other parts of the market were starting to recover and good companies cheap became less prevalent. And then as you came back out of that, it's much more of a mix back towards those more performing businesses. Again, similar to Perry was saying, which had liquidity issues or were, were trading at discounts because they were orphaned for currency or geography or or, or other political reasons which provided opportunity. So having that flexible approach and being entrepreneurial and dynamic can often be the difference between the success. I think you can get caught if you have a narrow strategy and if you, at different parts of that cycle, often managers stuck in a narrow strategy have to do the least worst trades rather than the best trades. And so in this environment, investors now start to gravitate towards strategies that have a bit more flexibility and a bit more dynamism, I think, and they allow more freedom to look across the spectrum and, and choose the best trades that are available rather than the least worse. I very much agree with Leander there. And I think in practice, to answer your question, we've kind of achieved a similar shift in opportunity sets in, in just different sectors. For example, just after the cycle, we invested heavily in distressed residential mortgage-backed securities bonds with a putback litigation against the mortgage originator, given violations in underwriting and origination from before the crisis. Today, banks have 
largely pulled back from originating non-agency residential loans except to pristine borrowers. And there's a, a pocket of underserved borrowers out there for, for non-agency residential mortgage origination. To put some numbers around that, between 2002 and 2004, a relatively moderate lending environment, there was on average $560 billion of issuance of RMBS bonds backed by newly originated non-agency loans. And in the eight years since the crisis, there has in aggregate been less than $70 billion of issuance of newly originated non-agency RMBS bonds. So... Just after the crisis, we participated in the distressed opportunity that came from a lot of origination pre-crisis. And now with banks pulling back, we found opportunities to step in and partner with managers who have their own affiliated mortgage originator and can take advantage of the dislocation in the lending environment in non-agency residential mortgages. And can you explain to somebody who is new to this asset class the process of credit selection, the mechanics here, are you going right into each individual loan or are you picking up buckets of loans or how exactly does it work? I I would stress that actually we can get carried away by what is the market doing? Is the market up? Is the market down? As a good anecdote, for 2017 in the private credit universe, if you took the top 10 winners and the top 10 losers, you know, if you'd had to guess how many of the top 10 uh, winners were in retail and how many of the top 10 losers were in retail? Well, actually, five of the top 10 were in retail and eight of the top losers were in retail. In other words, credit selection still remains paramount. You can make a huge performance on being successful on what is perceived as a weak sector, which is retail in this environment, or make significant losses in that same sector at the same time. And we're talking about the very top performers or the very top losers in this case. So credit selection actually is often not talked about enough. And actually, I think in this environment now, I mentioned earlier about some of the competition coming into private credit universe and actually a lot of capital having entered. And I I mentioned that trillion number earlier. Well, what you're now going to get is a lot more of a differential between the successful managers and the weaker managers going forward. Those that with the experience to choose the right credits in essence, and those that have joined more of a bandwagon because easier allocations in private credit and you could have just rode that wave of bank deleveraging so and so forth. And now you really have to show your your true sourcing capability, your true structuring capability uh, and your true ability to choose credits. So this is similar to the equity world where disruption is bigger than it's ever been. So on the on the face of it, we seemed prior to a few weeks ago, we seemed to be in this very calm, low volatility world. But if you looked below the surface and looked at individual stocks and you you saw the winners and the losers and and therefore the need to be making the right decisions and actively managing it. So this is still very much also oh, yeah. true in and, your world. And, and likewise, you know, there's some interesting things going on. So in a lot of the published data that you see in the marketplace right now, it looks like that leverage on deals has gone up from about four times to about five times since the last crisis. So relatively softer increase in leverage. Markets and humans have a way of putting excesses on and often they're hidden. And in this case, in the private credit world, what we've seen is this concept, for example, of adjusted EBITDA, where you can think about future revenues and future cost savings put into today's EBITDA. So whilst the deal might be marketed at 
say, a four and a half times leverage multiple, its real leverage is six and a half to seven times. So on most of the deals getting done right now, we're seeing that le real leverage is about 25 to 30% higher than what is put on the front of the tin, as it were. So you can see all sorts of practices, the way equity cures can be put in, the way covenants, cover light has become mm. very prevalent. You know, 75% of deals with cover light last year. It's over 85% Q1 this year, and so on and so forth. So what you're seeing is the market is setting itself up for a distress cycle. It's setting itself up for perhaps lower recoveries from that distress cycle than a previous cycle as a result. And so the same things are happening in private credit in, as in the equity markets as capital comes in and chases. So interesting, I think, is less well known than others realize. I agree with Leander that credit selection is supremely important and you have to definitely do deep underwriting. Also, I think it's worth noting that in this space, you know, credit selection is, is not the only important factor. And for example, sourcing, I think, is just as important as, you know, you have to be able to have an edge in sourcing to find assets that not everybody else is is simply able to bid on. Otherwise, pricing just won't be as attractive and it's not worth locking up your money for a private credit strategy. In addition, I think asset management, uh, you know, both servicing and work abilities are extremely important because as Leander referenced, if we do enter a downturn, especially in the corporate space, you have to be able to work through problems and, and come out the other side and uh, protect your downside. So I think credit selection is extremely important, uh, but it's it's one component of a three-leg stool across across sourcing and uh, asset management. Tell me a bit more about sourcing. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Sure. So I think we, we look at sourcing across two different buckets. We're diversifying our exposure across strategies that are originating performing loans or acquiring loans off of third parties that are often non-economic sellers today, often banks, because they have to sell for capital ratio reasons to delever their balance sheet. In the former, in originating new loans, we've partnered with managers who have their own affiliated mortgage origination company uh, where they can source certain types of borrowers that others can't. And in the latter, we've, we've partnered with managers who often have their own servicer and are able to acquire large pools of, for example, small balance commercial real estate loans that others can't easily acquire and then service. So in, in either category, we think it's important to have kind of a business edge that keeps others out of the sourcing process and keeps it from being competitive, whereby you're not just bidding on a bond or a loan that others can turn on their Bloomberg and bid, but you have to have have to have an edge in being able to access these loans. So considering where we are on the credit cycle, and when you look across capital structures, where do you feel the best risk-adjusted return is? Given where we are on this credit cycle, potentially late cycle, we're very focused on downside protection. Uh, while we have different views on the fundamentals of different sectors, it's hard to time ultimately when a recession will occur and recessions will impact all credit sectors to some degree. Uh, therefore, at this point, we are mainly focused on staying first lean in the capital structure and focused on having a loan-to-value cushion backed by an attractive asset. We want to make sure that if there is a downturn, we're senior in the capital structure, have control, and have partnered with a manager who also has distressed workout experience and can work, work through a problem. And I think that's one important feature of private credit structures Having the longer lockup structure 
allows managers to make economic rational decisions and work through problems. Whereas many public credit investors have exposure in T plus one vehicles like mutual funds. And when there's volatility or distress, they may be forced sellers because of other investors pulling out at the wrong time. So we're very focused on having control, being senior in the capital structure and, you know, giving our managers time to work through any problems that arise. Yeah, I, I would uh, I definitely agree with that. And I would say, you know, as a as a special situations investor, inherently it makes sense in that if you're a private equity guy today, you know, where you typically have a strategy where you buy an asset at, you know, a multiple of X and you hope in five years time that it has a, a multiple above X, it's probably more challenging as you're at this part of the cycle. And you're going to have to put more leverage on and pay more for those assets today uh, as a result. Likewise, if you're just doing uh, pure senior lending as a general rule and hoping to lend to a company today and get your money back tomorrow, as default rates rise, it'll be more challenging. So I think that the point that Perry made around, you want to be entering out an asset at a discount to its value uh, already today, so that as you get that volatility, you can continue to say grow a position in that name, but you're already starting your entry point at a discount. So I think it's one of the reasons why you've seen a significant increase in the demand by investors of stressed and distressed as a result of that worry about where should I put my capital at this part of the cycle within private credit universe. So given where we are in the cycle, how are investors changing their allocation within private credit? So I think if you went back over the last five years, you saw a significant explosion in allocations towards the senior direct lending and also the mezzanine part of direct lending within private credit. And that part of the private credit spectrum still remains the largest part of the private credit spectrum. And that really has been fed by that shift of risk out of bank balance sheets into the hands of non-traditional lenders and led to a growth of almost a, a trillion in direct lending across the globe. What you've seen, I think, more recently is concerns around lending standards starting to slip, as well as competition within that space, as well as concerns about where we are in the credit cycle, all coming together and an increase in allocation away from direct lending while still having allocations nonetheless, but an increase towards more special sits and distress type strategies who are on the sort of current environment of, are now the, have moved up to nearer to sort of the second most popular part of the uh, private credit universe. I agree with Leander there. There's been a, a massive flood of capital into corporate direct lending strategies. And I think in, in the last year, there was, I think, over 50% of capital that went into, quote unquote, private credit strategies, went into corporate direct lending. We've accordingly started to shift our allocation away from there to other sectors of lending that I, I think are less crowded. There, we include commercial real estate bridge lending, residential mortgage lending, and lending to specialty finance originators as banks have pulled back from other types of lending like consumer and SME lending. We've also shifted allocations more to Europe where, as Leander previously referenced, banks are continuing to shed assets to come into compliance with capital ratios and have two trillion of non-core, non-performing assets. There, we continue to buy pools of loans from performing through non-performing loans off bank balance sheets and partner with banks 
to execute risk sharing or regulatory capital transactions whereby asset managers share in the risk of a pool of loans on bank balance sheets. So I think as a private credit investor, it's important not to just think about the opportunity in corporate direct lending, which is where many people have put their money and focus and and broaden the universe and look at different opportunity sets that have better supply demand dynamics. If I can check, I understand. It seems to me that the perfect world for private credit is one in which through the pressures of regulation, banks aren't lending across sector, across the economy in the way that they previously had. But there's also economic room for the uh, recovery to run. And Europe seems the perfect place for that right now. Is that in your thinking? Have I understood it correctly? Yeah, we definitely see about two thirds of the opportunity set and sometimes more all coming out of Europe. And there just seems to be a structural rather than just a economic reason for that. The banks have so much deleveraging. In actual fact, the story within uh, Europe is actually different if you go country by country. So, for example, the UK, the Irish, the German banks, for example, all got a lot of their deleveraging done earlier on in the cycle. And if you look at where a lot of the supply is coming from now, you can see a lot of the supply risk coming from the banks, for example, in Spain, in Italy, Greece, Portugal, who were much slower in being able to get recapitalized and therefore are not as far along in terms of the asset sales they wanted to achieve. In addition, compounding with that is also the the behavior of banks. And in that way, banks used to be much more comfortable across cross-border lending, for example. And so often a lot of the supply risk you can sometimes see in the non-core part is we used to be as a German bank, a big uh, lender in Spain, and now we're not. So we're going to sell our Spain portfolio, for example. And that would definitely feature in a non-core part. Or it might be a French bank who used to be large in a certain sector like leverage finance and now wants to exit the leverage finance sector saying we are no longer going to be in leverage finance. So that difference between non-performing and non-core adds up to about a total of two trillion or about one trillion in each part, but has different motivations, but nonetheless the same result, which is still the requirement of an exit of assets. And so that structural provision is here to stay. It's not going to go away. And regardless of cycle, the attraction therefore of Europe is that it has this constant supply that has been inbuilt by regulators. The US is much more around a cyclical nature of markets and therefore is much more around the supply of distress. And we've started to see an uptick in distress, especially in the mid-cap space. And you can actually track that when you look at some of the mid-cap CLO managers. And you've actually seen in the last few months, our new deals originated, uh, almost 5% of those deals go to triple C or to default within a year of being put on. So you can see already some of that stress as slightly higher rates come in and that spread increase happens as well for them, leading to increase in default. So the US definitely feels like it's much more around a cyclical market is the supply opportunity and is much more further along in the economic cycle than Europe as a result. Leander and Perry, thank you for your time. It's been really interesting. I think particularly considering how the change in the regulatory environment has been so significant in the last decade. 
we really have to think about this asset class, clearly. And what you've said about being able to move the portfolio to adjust to the cycle is comforting, as well as what you've said about actually being paid for the risk. So really interesting. So thank you for joining us on Insights. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much, Karen. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have any feedback, please submit it on our website. Recorded on February 23rd, 2018. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, 
CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.